The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verses 34 through 46. And the Lord heard your words and was angered. And he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me the Lord was angry on your account, and said, You also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Then you answered me, we have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, Say to them, Do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning to you all. Uh, my name is Frank Hitchings. I want to add my welcome to that of David's. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and we're glad that y'all are here this morning. We're in the middle of a summer series in Deuteronomy, and we'll actually do a little review this morning of uh, what we've covered up until now. But before we jump into the passage, uh, let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we uh, thank you that your word indeed is living and active, that it can penetrate our hearts for what we want most this morning, Lord, is not just to get our heads around this ancient passage. We want it, Lord, to affect our hearts. We want to see how the same message that Moses delivered to the people is relevant to our lives today. So we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and that the result at the end of the hour would be that we know you better, that we know our own hearts better and that we understand uh, more deeply the reality of your grace in our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Yes, indeed, this morning we return to our study in Deuteronomy. 
Um, we're looking at, or still looking at, the first of three sermons that Moses delivers to the Israelites. He's uh, actually delivering this to the second generation of those that had been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They're standing uh, on the brink of entering the promised land there at uh, Kadesh Barnea, at that oasis at the southern edge of the promised land. And if you weren't with us last week, I mean, people are in and out in the summer. Summers are much different. If you weren't with us last week, you missed the first half of this message. This message is, uh, is really a two-part message, and it's the message of covenant renewal and what are the requirements of covenant renewal. So one thing I would say is if you weren't here last week, uh, you can watch it on the internet uh, or you can download the podcast and get the first half uh, of this. This week, uh, we're looking at Moses recounting again to this younger generation how their parents failed. Their parents who had just been rescued from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, 11 days before this account, how they had failed, how they had grumbled and murmured against God, had accused God of hating them, accused God of drawing them out of Egypt and bringing them into the wilderness only to die at the hands of their enemies and be abandoned by God. It's a tendency uh, to grumble, a tendency to complain that we're looking at this morning that comes naturally to us as fallen human beings. We're born with it, we exhibit it at a very young age, and unfortunately it doesn't magically disappear when we come to faith, does it? I was uh, reading this week, um, Ian Frazier wrote this about 25 years ago. He's this wonderful writer, wonderful humorist, and he wrote in The Atlantic, um, about 25 years ago about parenting, about what parenting is like. And he wrote this article, uh, it's entitled this, Laws Concerning Food and Drink, Lamentations of a Father. Just makes you want to read it. And he writes in the style of Moses that Moses uses in Leviticus. And he's not intending to be irreverent at all. He's just humorously addressing principles of behavior that are expected in his home. He writes about laws concerning table manners and whether or not you qualify to get dessert. He writes about eating in the living room and washing one's face and hands before they come to the dinner table. And he writes about complaining and about just how natural it is, how inclined we are to complain and grumble at a young age. I want to read you just a short sample of it as we start. He says this, do not scream for it is, this, it is as if you scream all the time. If you're given a plate on which two foods you do not wish to touch each other are touching each other, your voice rises up even to the ceiling while you point to the offense with the finger of your right hand. But I say to you, scream not. Remonstrate gently with the server that the server may correct the fault. Likewise, if you receive a portion of fish from which every piece of herbal seasoning has not been scraped off, <laughs> and the herbal seasoning is loathsome to you and steeped in vileness, again I say, refrain from screaming. Though the vileness overwhelm you and cause you to faint unto death, make not that sound from within your throat, neither cover your face nor press your fingers to your nose. <laughs> For even now I have made the fish as it should be. Behold, I eat of it myself, yet I do not die. 
Oh, my children, you are disobedient. For when I tell you what you must do, you argue and dispute hotly, even to the littlest detail. And when I do not accede, you cry out and hit and kick. Yes, and even sometimes you do spit and shout, stupid head. <laughs> and other blasphemies. I mean, he just goes on and on. It's just, if you've ever, if you've been a parent or if you can remember being a child or you've been around children, that's just the way it is. We learn to grumble and complain we learn to disobey at a very young age. And it doesn't magically go away when we grow in faith and when we come to faith, it doesn't magically go away. Well, the Israelites had this tendency to grumble and complain. We're told about it in verse 32. We're told it's a sign of their unbelief. Just to kind of put it in context here, let me back up and read you just a little of what we looked at last week. Um, the Lord's brought them to the edge of the promised land. They've sent spies in to see the promised land. They see the beauty of it and the fruitfulness of it, but also that the cities are fortified. And Moses said, um, see the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And he goes on and he says this, yet you would not go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you murmured in your tents and said, get this, because the Lord hated us, he brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Our brothers have made our hearts melt, this are the spies when they came back, saying the people are greater and taller than we are. The cities are great and fortified up to the heavens. And besides, we've seen the sons of Anakim there. Those were like known to be, you know, modern day giants in their day. And then again, I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. Yet in spite of this, you did not believe the Lord your God. In their refusal to enter the promised land, Moses says they sat in their tents, <clears throat> excuse me, and they murmured against God. They accused him of hating them, of bringing them out of Egypt only to have them die at the hands of their enemies. And all Moses is doing here, he's, he's attempting over and over to convince them otherwise of the care of their God, and they reject it all. As they saw things, God's abandoned us. God doesn't care about us. And remember, this is 11 days after they left uh, captivity in Egypt. So last week, we looked at the, the reality that covenant renewal requires that we remember two things. The first two were our rebellion against God, which he's recounting there, but also the faithfulness of God in spite of our rebellion. This week's passage will cover the last two. He's also saying that covenant renewal requires that we remember that our disobedience has consequences and that we too face a continual temptation to presume upon God. So we just have these two points to see this morning. Let's look first at our disobedience has consequences. If you look at verse 34 through 40, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, <clears throat> verse 34, and the Lord heard your words 
and was angered and swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see, shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, Moses says, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. We'll go back to that one later. And as for your little ones, who you said would become prey, would, would become captives, and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. <clears throat> so, although the grumbling words, the, the words of rebellion against God, they were spoken in the secrecy of their tents, Moses says, the Lord heard, the Lord knows, the Lord was angry, and, and he uses this covenantal language, and the Lord swore, just like he swore in, in Genesis to give the land to Abraham's descendants. He says, the Lord swore that none of this evil, unbelieving generation would enter the promised land except Caleb and Joshua and their families and the children that were too young to know good from evil. So what's he saying? He's saying, tragically, your opportunity to, to enter the promised land has passed. It's lost. I was reading all kinds of different commentators um, this past week and, and some... Uh, kind of almost hint at this, the unfairness of this. In our modern day arrogance, we're tempted to think, well, that's kind of harsh to send them back in to wander in the desert for 40 years. But that is not only just totally inappropriate to accuse God of harshness, it's totally ignoring the facts. Just think for a minute. Think for a minute about all the Israelites had seen God do on their behalf. They saw the 10 plagues that came on the Egyptians. Many of those plagues actually did not come on the Israelites, but on the Egyptians alone. The plague of the flies, uh, the flies that swarmed the Egyptians all around the Egyptians and all in their homes. The text tells us in Exodus that the flies did not attack the Israelites. They were not bothering the Israelites. The livestock of the Egyptians died, but not the Israelite livestock. The boils, the plague of the boils afflict, affected only the Egyptians, not the Israelites. And, and obviously the, the last, the 10th and the greatest plague affecting the firstborn affected only the Egyptians, not the Israelites, the ones who had observed that first Passover, right? And painted the blood on the doorposts. They saw it, they witnessed all the plagues. Imagine, like imagine the, the plague of hail that imagine you're a farmer and like your land is here and your land gets nothing but rain and it's nourished but your Egyptian neighbor's land gets hail and everything's destroyed. I mean, God was doing it to say, these are my people, right? They saw it all. They were assured of God's presence with them. How? They had the pillar of cloud in the daytime, right? That guided them and also provided shade from the desert. They had the pillar of fire at night that gave them warmth and light during the night. 
They had his presence, they were assured of his provision. God gave them water in the desert to satisfy their thirst. He gave them manna and quail to satisfy their hunger. But not just his presence and his provision, he also were assured of his protection. You remember what happened when, when Pharaoh, once the Israelites were let go, once they left, Pharaoh changed his mind and decided to go after him and send the, the largest, most well-equipped army on the planet, sent the Egyptian army after him in hot pursuit. You remember what happened when the, when the Israelites were standing at the edge of the Red Sea and they heard that the, the Egyptians were coming, did they say, you know what, we've seen our God's faithfulness to us. We've seen it over and over. We trust him. We don't know how, but he's gonna rescue us. Is that what they said? This is what they said. They're standing on the edge of the Red Sea. They're panicking at the approaching Egyptian army. And this is what they said to Moses. Was it, was it because there were not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And you remember what happened? Instead of God saying, okay, that's it. Remember the Red Seas parted, they, the two million Israelites pass on dry land and then the Egyptians and their huge army go after them and the, and the waves collapse, the walls of water collapse and the entire Egyptian army is wiped out. They'd seen all of that. They've seen God do every bit of, yet, of that and yet they're standing on the southern edge of the promised land at the oasis of Kadesh Barnea and they're afraid to go into the land because of the Amorites. Because of the Amorites and their fortified cities, they didn't trust God to deliver on his age-old promise to give them this land. Isn't that amazing? So God announces the consequences. He tells them, in, in light of all this, I've seen it all, I'm I'm done, we're gonna, I'm not, I'm not done with you as my people, but I'm done with this entering the promised land right now. You turn around, he says in verse 40, and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. There are consequences. Here's what Moses is trying to say to this next generation. As they stand there poised just like their parents were 40 years before, he's saying we gotta remember that there are disobe that there that disobedience has consequences that unbelief has consequences and i was thinking about it this week it's important that we understand there's a huge difference between consequences for disobedience consequences for sin and cost or penalties for sin those are two night and day different things the consequences of their disobedience, of their, of their sin, the consequences of our disobedience and sin are many. Consequences like loss of, of fellowship with God or fellowship with others or even loss of trust in our relationships, loss of a relationship itself. There are consequences to our sin. We could lose our jobs, we could miss out on fun activities, right? How many of y'all have been grounded in your life? Yeah, if you're not raising your hands, you're either not telling the truth or you're gonna get grounded. <laughs> I got grounded my senior year a week before graduation and didn't get to go out on senior prank night. Turned out to be a blessing. 
A lot of people got in trouble that night, not me. There are consequences. The list just goes on and on. But consequences are very different than costs, than penalties, than punishment. If you're a believer, if you're sitting here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus, you're trusting in him, in his righteousness, not your own. You've accepted his righteousness by faith and and your sin has been placed on him and paid for by him on the cross and you're eternally secure. That's what the scriptures teach. But if on the other hand, you're not trusting in him, if you're somehow thinking, at least I'm not as bad as those people or I've got a lot, I got some good in me too. I do some good things and God's grace makes up the difference. Basically, you'd be trusting in your own righteousness and if that's the case, the scripture says that you will have to pay the cost. Either Jesus pays it or we pay it. But don't miss it, there's a huge difference between experiencing consequences for our sin and disobedience and paying the cost and the penalty for it. There's a huge difference between divine punishment and divine chastisement. R.C. Sproul talks about those two different things. Punishment is not the same as chastisement. In Hebrews, and the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse six says, God disciplines those, he chastises those whom he loves. They're experiencing the consequences here of their sin and their rebellion. And as they stand there poised to enter the promised land, as they stand there ready to renew their covenant with God, Moses is saying that to them. Say, remember, remember their consequences for disobedience. Our disobedience has consequences, but but now look at how the Israelites responded to those consequences. You know, God has said, you're not gonna enter the promised land None of you will, only Caleb and Joshua and their families and the, and the really young ones who were too young to know good from evil, only those will enter. And look at verse 41. He said to them in verse 40, you know, to turn and head back into the wilderness towards the Red Sea. Verse 41, then you answered me, we have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds good. Not only were the Israelites fearful of the Amorites, not only were they fearful of their fortified cities, not only were they grumbling and rebelling against God and refusing to do what he said to do, not only are they accusing him of hating them and abandoning them, now they're actually being outrageously presumptive. God has pronounce the consequences. He says, you're not gonna enter, but the next generation will. You turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. He's given them this new command, and what do they do? They stubbornly, again, stubbornly refuse to heed God's word, and they make a bad situation even worse. But it starts off so good, sounds good, doesn't it? We have sinned against the Lord. Sounds like repentance. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord commanded. Like we're gonna follow his command. But look what else he says. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up or fight for I am not in your midst 
lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you and you would not listen, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Or the NIV says, in your arrogance went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Horma. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. You see what's happening? God's given them a command, they refuse to do it. Now God has said, here are the consequences. Now here's the next command, I want you to do this. And now they're backing up saying, no, 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 no. We'll go do this one. I love what, um, I love what Irish biblical scholar Alec Motyer says. We've been reading a lot of Alec Motyer lately. Uh, Alec Motyer, I learned this week, Tim Keller says he's one of the two fathers of Tim's preaching ministry. And I've really enjoyed reading his commentary, but this is what he said. Sums it up so well. When the Lord told them to enter the promised land and take it, they refused. Now the Lord tells them not to go and they insist on going. When it was promised territory, they would not enter it. Now it's forbidden territory and they will not stay away. We may think it unbelievably presumptuous, but it's entirely typical of human sinfulness. And then he he quotes Scottish theologian P.T. Forsyth and says this, we are not straying children, innocent babes in the woods lost and longing for home. We are mutinous rebels with weapons in our hands. I think he's right. Even though they're using the spiritual language of repentance, right? We've sinned against the Lord. They're using the spiritual language of repentance. They're not repenting at all. They're not listening to the Lord. They're not obeying. In fact, they're making a bad situation even worse. When we were, when Mary Master and I were raising our kids when they were little, you know, you're trying to teach them uh, about obedience. You're trying to teach them about repentance and you know, one of them will do something to, to another one and, uh, or, or disobey a parent. And, and you're kind of teaching them three things. You're like, we want, them to, we want them to say, you know, mom or dad, I'm sorry. And you want them to say what they did, right? I'm sorry that I was disrespectful or disobeyed or whatever. Will you forgive me? Ask for forgiveness, right? Well, we had, we'll just say at least one that used to love to just say, it was like abracadabra. They would just go, sorry. That's all you could get. You're sorry for what? Sorry. Well, you, you gotta go the rest of the way. You gotta say the whole thing. You know, you gotta mean the whole thing. And they would just dig a deep, I'm not using pronouns, did you notice that? They would just dig a deeper and deeper hole. That's, that's how we are with God. That's how these people are with God. They're, they're saying, sorry, we'll do it now. And they're totally disobeying his new command. They're making a bad situation even worse. They're intent on pressing forward with their agenda in spite of God's clear direction, in spite of his warning that that he says, I will not be with them. I love what Ed Blair, uh, who's another commentator I've been reading said, he said, now too late in self-willed desperation 
in an open defiance of God's clear warning, they throw themselves against the securely entrenched inhabitants of the land and they were absolutely routed by the Amorites. That's exactly what happened. Their repentance was artificial. It was insincere. It was no repentance at all. So was their obedience. It was insincere and artificial. Because obedience on our terms is no different than disobedience. So here they stand. They're on the verge of entering the promised land and Moses is encouraging them. He's saying, guard your hearts. Don't be like your parents who 40 years ago had the same opportunity and squandered it. He's saying, guard your hearts against presuming on God and his favor like your parents did. He's saying, guard your hearts against making a bad situation worse with further disobedience instead of genuine repentance. He's saying covenant renewal. He's saying to the Israelites, if you're really interested in renewing your covenant as you enter the promised land, then you have to rightly listen to God's word, to his commands, and not compound our sin with more presumption He's telling the, the Israelites, he's telling us, covenant renewal requires that we beware of the core sin under all of that, the core sin of unbelief that creeps in so easily and so quickly and manifests itself with grumbling against God, with questioning his love for us, with wanting him to serve us on our terms. So as we, as we wrap up, there's some questions uh, that really come right out of this passage that, that I think each of us need to wrestle with, but we can only do it ourselves. Nobody can wrestle with these for us. I was thinking this week, one of them is this. Are we genuinely striving to have our lives marked by a God-honoring obedience? Or are we really not concerned about obedience at all? Not concerned at all because we're covered by grace, right? We have God's favor, right? Obedience doesn't really matter. Or regarding our hearts against presuming on the favor of God while still choosing to live our lives any way we want to live our lives, not following his commands. Not that following his commands merits us his favor at all. His favor comes because of Jesus, but Nevertheless, it's awful easy, Moses is saying, to fall into the trap of presuming on the favor of God and not worrying at all, not having any concern for obedience. And lastly, one thing here, are we trusting in his character? Are we trusting in the character of God and the power of God and the sovereign plan of God and the perfect timing of God over every detail of our life circumstances or are we living fearfully thinking it's up to us? We gotta take care of ourselves. We have to provide for ourselves. We have to control our own lives. All these are lessons that the people of God had to learn and that we still need to learn. But the best news of this passage, we'll end on a positive note. The best news of this passage is that God's the one who provided for the Israelites. Even in the 40 years wandering in the wilderness, God's the one who provide for them, provided for them. God's the one who provides for us. Back to verse 38. I love verse 38. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter 
And then he says this, encourage him for he shall cause Israel to inherit the promised land. Just as Moses told the people of God that Joshua's with you, Joshua's with you, Joshua's gonna lead you that you might inherit the promised land, so he has sent the greater Joshua, Jesus himself, that you and I, if we're, if we're trusting in him, will inherit the ultimate promised land, the one of, of which uh, in Moses' time was only a picture of what we look forward to, the one that Revelation tells us, the place where Revelation tells us God dwells with his people in perfect peace, that place where there's no more death or crying or pain or sickness, that place where all things will have been made new, that's the promise of God for us if our faith is rooted in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the record of scripture that recounts Moses' message to the Israelites as they stood on the edge of the promised land. We thank you for the call of the scriptures to renew our commitment to your great and gracious covenant that you established with your people all the way back in Genesis. And we thank you, Lord, that the, the message that you gave Moses for the people is just as relevant today as it was over 3,000 years ago when it was first given to the Israelites. And we do pray, Lord, for uh, the spirit uh, of you, our living God, to dwell in our hearts and guard our hearts against the sin of unbelief that can creep in so easily, that can manifest itself in ways like complaining and grumbling when life doesn't go the way we think it should go. Guard our hearts against presuming on your grace, Lord, and living as if we can live any way we want to. Obedience doesn't really matter. Lord, even as we're uh, about to sing in, in just a few moments, we ask that you would occupy our lowly hearts through the power of your spirit. That you would help us to live each day of our lives dependent on your enabling and sustaining grace. That through the miracle of your grace, Lord, glory might be ascribed to you through the lives of people like us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.